Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time with family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Okay. Man, I, um, I really do love that song. Um, just a prayer uh, to the Lord, to uh, an offering of our hearts uh, into his care and offering uh, a plea really uh, of our, uh, our lives. Um, but, um, uh, man, I just, I, um, I think maybe the most relaxing three or four minutes of the day was probably that song that we were singing. Just, it's been another busy day. Uh, maybe for you it has, maybe these days have proved to be, um, maybe a little slower for some of us. Maybe they proved, uh, to be quite busy. Uh, for some of us, uh, but uh, I know for, for myself, I'm definitely uh, uh, staying quite occupied, uh, but um, <clears throat> hopefully it's not labor that's in vain, uh, at least some of it that is, um, but I'll tell you, I, um, you know, just really enjoy those moments when we can gather um, around um, around music uh, before we gather around the word, and uh, just as we did tonight, hopefully, uh, just ask him to, to take our hearts. Um, and, and I know a, a lot of us are um, are trying to eat dinner uh, while we are kind of hanging around here. Um, but I do hope that we will make a very concerted effort to uh, feast spiritually on his word tonight. And, um, you know, we find ourselves, <clears throat> this is session three uh, in, in our study on um, church history. And um, I just feel the need to every week ask you guys to hang in there with me because uh, it's going to be uh, maybe a, another couple months or so <laughs> before we actually get into um, uh, church history uh, proper, uh, if you will. Um, oh, I, I am really going to, uh, we are really going to uh, attempt to take the time to, to lay some critical foundation uh, as far as God's plan and, and, and um, the move of God and the move of Satan through history and and uh, this week and next week, uh, guys, we're going to be talking about uh, some uh, some things of uh, of the Bible and how the Bible has, has been attacked. We are actually going to fast forward uh, through the book of Acts. Uh, we're going we're going to be in Acts tonight, but we're going to fast forward through the book of Acts through nearly two thousand years of church history, 
uh, to today, to the 21st century. And we're going to talk about some of the things uh, tonight and next week uh, because I, I, some of the things that we're seeing anyway as far as um, where we are spiritually speaking in the church today, especially around the Word of God. Um, and I want to do that because when we do walk through the passage uh, of church history, when we do walk through those seven uh, churches of Revelation 2 and 3, when we do walk through the last 2,000 years uh, where the book of Acts uh, leaves off um, uh, all the way to uh, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 where the church is raptured uh, out, uh, pictured by, uh, by John there in Revelation 4.1, I, I want us to have an understanding and a foundation of in the back of our minds and be able to identify the things that we're seeing and not see them for the first time. But I want us to build a filter, if you will, uh, to be able to uh, go into this prepared. Uh, so uh, it's, it's with that uh, caveat that we will go ahead and jump into our study. If you have, if you have, if you're a note taker and, or, or you're using the notes that I provided, uh, um, then man, that's awesome. If not, that's, that's equally awesome. Uh, you can take your own notes or just listen or um, interpretive dance or however you process information will be just fine. Just turn your camera off if you do that. But, um, you know, as we – I don't know if you remember the days when um, when we used to go to church. Y'all remember those days? <laughs> remember we used to um, drive to those things called buildings and uh, see those other things we call people? And uh, we would get to interact with them. I don't know if y'all remember that. Some of us may be too young for that. <laughs> but um, as we would drive to church, um, what would you typically inevitably see uh, as you would pass uh, by different places? Uh, no doubt you would pass by at least a couple of other buildings also uh, called churches, right? Um, and if you go inside those churches and you ask them, ask the leadership, uh, the pastors, the congregants, you know, whatever. If you ask them what they believe about the Bible and what they believe about salvation and what they believe about baptism and what they believe about Jesus and what they believe about the end times, you know, you're probably going to get as many different answers as you would the number of churches that you go into. And so I want to ask you, how do you know, and maybe you can just answer this in your heart, in your mind, but how do you know that what you believe is the truth? Like, I, I just want to pose this question to you. Uh, maybe if you're with someone, you can kind of discuss for a brief moment or just kind of think, but, but, you know, you have a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses who knock at your door and they'll tell you, Hey, I'm, I'm so glad that now I found the truth. And, and, and you're like, no, I have the truth. And then you'll go to a Mormon's house um, or they'll come to your house rather. And they'll say the same thing. And the Mormons, they said they have the truth. And you're like, no, I have the truth. And, and so I want to ask you, how do you know that what you have is the truth? And you may be thinking, well, come on, Robert. You know, we have the truth. I mean, it's us, right? You know that. Uh, but I really want you to, to be able to tell me how you know that. And some of us may be thinking, well, this is what my parents said was right. Um, but but I will submit to you First Peter one eighteen, um, and we'll get to our our PowerPoint and our notes in just a moment. But I'll submit to you First Peter one eighteen uh, that says that um, as, as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold uh, from your vain conversation received by by tradition from your fathers. So so, so we can receive by our, our parents and those that have gone on before us vain 
conversation and, and that has been received by tradition. So it's not just how we're raised that, that determines and defines truth. Uh, I, I think Pam would probably attest to that. I, I know she has a, um, a Mormon background, and there was probably a day when she would have told you, I have the truth. Um, uh, but the Lord has since opened her eyes by his spirit and by his word. Praise the Lord for that. But some of us may say, you know, well, it, this is just what feels right. You know, I, I feel it in my heart. Um, but, you know, we know that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is, is deceitful above all things, right? It's desperately wicked. And that verse poses the question, who can even know the heart? Uh, and some of us might say, well, you know, it just seems right. But Proverbs fourteen twelve says that there is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And then there are those, you know, that might say, well, I've looked at all the facts and the information and I've reasoned it out and, and on and on. But Romans 11.33 uh, tells us that uh, uh, it speaks of the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, that his judgments are unsearchable and that his ways are past finding out. First uh, Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, uh, man or natural uh, man's eye hath not seen, nor the natural ear has uh, not heard, nor has entered into the natural heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. And so as we think about, maybe those would be some of our um, go-to, so to speak, for uh, why we believe what we believe, why we think that, why we, we're convinced that, that what we hold is the truth. Um, let's just be aware that even among those churches that will tell you something different that they believe to be true, you'll also find that they're using different Bibles. Uh, Mormons have their Bibles. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their Bible. Uh, um, honestly speaking, uh, Protestants have their Bible. Catholics have their Bible. Even among Baptists, uh, they have their different Bibles. Some are using the King James Bible. Some are using the New International Version. Uh, then you have uh, Reformed churches, uh, and, and they love the English Standard Version, the ESV, and the, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. And so I hope you're seeing that this thing can get real cloudy real quick. And so how do you know the Bible that you have tonight is even the right Bible? You know, we, we take um, the King James Version, for example, and, and we'll set it down on the table, and we'll say this is the infallible word of god and then and then someone brings in another version and we put that down on the table right next to it and, and say that this is the infallible word of god but the problem is that this bible says something different than that bible they say different things and so are they, are they both the infallible word of god are they both inerrant are they both preserved are they both perfect so how do we know that what we have is the right Bible. And, and, and as, as you're going to see, um, as we go through church history and as we talk tonight, um, we have to ask ourselves, are, are we going to use the, strange, the same strategy uh, that we used before? Well, this is just the Bible that my parents used. Uh, this is just the Bible that feels right. This is just the Bible that, that is easiest for me to understand or to relate to. And the problem is that most fundamental Baptist churches today is that they know, we know what we believe, but we just don't know why we believe it. 
And, and so I want to just, just talk for a moment about One Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Do you know why you believe what you believe? And I'm asking you this, and I don't want you to just to jump to, 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 to the right answer of yes. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses are proof that if you don't know why you believe what you believe, you can get talked out of what you believe. And I mentioned that last week, but I'm going to say that again. Uh, you ought to write that down or lock that in somehow. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, you can get talked out of what you believe. Because that cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, is predominantly made up of people who sat in Baptist churches very much like the one that you and I are sitting in right now. Most of them are former Baptists, and they're people who didn't really know why they believe what they believe, and someone came along and told them something different that they believed that for the same reason. Well, that just seems right. Oh, that makes so much sense. And so I hope you can see why, why this thing is so important. And it's, it's, it's with that introduction uh, that I want us to, to, to lead us into just a brief um, review. And by brief, I mean very brief, because we do have some ground to cover tonight. Uh, and this will lead us into our, um, our notes. Uh, share screen. There it is. Um, so <clears throat> throw this up here. Excuse the awkward interruption. Okay, there it is. Um, so uh, session three, here we are, the pattern in the book of Acts. And so um, we've been formulating a biblical definition of church history. All right. And, and as we've done that, uh, I emphasize biblical because um, I, I don't care. You ought not care what my idea or my definition is. Um, uh, respectfully, I don't care what any man's definition is. Uh, we're going to look at this thing uh, through the Bible. And so we've seen uh, that God has a threefold plan, and that plan breaks out into three aspects of time that God has made. And as you probably remember from covering this the last couple weeks in a row, uh, that uh, plan uh, is a plan for the universe, which represents the future. Uh, it, it includes a plan for the earth, uh, which represents uh, history or the past. And, of course, it is a plan for your life, uh, which represents the present. So we have, again, God as a triune God, the Godhead, three in one. Uh, everything he does, everything in his physical creation uh, bears witness of his trinity. Uh, so does his plan. And so when we look at this uh, biblical definition of church history, uh, we have said that it is the movement of God through history to accomplish his threefold plan for the universe the earth and your life, and it is the movement of the devil through history to counter, counterfeit, and confound God's threefold plan. And that's exactly what it is, friends. It is a big spiritual cosmic chess match. Uh, we can actually see that chess game. Now, I'll we'll just use that term. Uh, we can see that chess game unfolding in one of the books of the Bible that records the history of the church. It just so happens to be the book that um, has led us on Sunday mornings to, to many of the, our other uh, books of study, and that is none other than, than the book of Acts. And, and so what we're going to do is just we're going to cruise through um, and just just stop a couple, a few different places and see where every time that God is moving, and when God moves through the book of Acts, friends, uh, 
it is an incredible move. I mean, what he is doing in the book of Acts uh, is, is amazing. But every time, every time a counter move of the devil follows. And so I wanted to show this to you. Uh, so let's begin to see how this pattern uh, begins to develop. You see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, we see God moving. Um, verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I mean, what an incredible move of the Spirit of God. And, and then in the next chapter, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, uh, Peter says, um, he's, he's speaking to, to a lame man, uh, and he, he's asking for uh, for, for uh, charity, for alms, for, for uh, something that can just help him. Um, he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I give, uh, I have, I give, uh, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And before we just even go on from this, I, I, I have to stop and uh, just let you know that um, God never, listen, he, he never gave the gift of healing or miracles for the purpose of just getting somebody well. Like, like that was, isn't the purpose. That wasn't the purpose. Uh, it was a result, inevitably, but it was never his purpose. And I want to just take a quick uh, detour um, to hold your place in Acts or, or just bear with me and check out Hebrews. Um, and I know I'm putting most, if not all, these verses up here, but I do hope you have your Bibles in front of you too. Uh, but, but check out Hebrews because the Bible very clearly gives us the reason that those gifts of healing and miracles took place. And I think some of us may, may, or many of us may know what that is. Many of us may not. But do you know why the gift of healings and the gift of miracles was even given in the first place? It, it was for the purpose of giving evidence that the, the people, the apostles, were from God and that they were truly speaking for God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So the context here is a salvation context. And he says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Who is the them that heard him? That's the apostles. Now watch this in verse four, God also bearing them, them witness both. How did he bear them witness? With signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Okay, and so there is a new covenant now, a new testament, uh, but the new testament has not yet been penned because the apostles hadn't written it yet, right? So when the book of Acts, the testator has died, Hebrews 9.27, there is a new testament, if you will. Uh, but the New Testament, as we know it, uh, uh, in writing, has not been penned. And so they're still preaching it. They're still living it. <laughs> so, so God gives them, the apostles, the gift of miracles and healings so that when they said, hey, this is what God says, the people would know that it was truly from God and that they were speaking for God. But the thing about... Um, sign gifts and miracles and gifts of healing is that they were temporary sign gifts. The Bible is very clear that it was for the purpose of convincing unbelieving Jews, friends, and that's why the gift wasn't necessary after 90 to 95 AD because the New Testament was completed by then. And what you'll begin to see as you start studying church history is that after that time frame of 90 to 95 AD, 
you don't see those gifts in operation in the church anymore. Because you don't need them anymore. Because now we have a full, final word from God. And by the way, you actually do see them again, uh, but it's not until around the 20th century, around the 1900s time frame, uh, when a lot of craziness was breaking out. Uh, but we'll, we'll definitely get there. But after 90 to 95 AD, you don't see it anymore. Because we have his word. That's how we know if someone's speaking for God now. I don't need Pastor Frank. You don't need me to perform a sign, a miracle, a healing to validate what God is saying. All you need to do is search it out in his word. And if it lines up with his book, it's from the Lord. Rightly divided, then it's from the Lord. If not, then it's not. So we don't need people walking around telling us or posting YouTube videos about how they've received a word from God or a vision from God. He's already given us his full and complete and perfect word. You don't need me to add it or excuse me, to add to it with, with a gift of healing and miracles to validate what I'm saying. Just line it up with what he has already revealed in his word, friends. And it's really important that we get that. And so I just wanted to, to kind of throw that out there. Uh, just let's not forget that. Let, let's not forget that. Uh, but, but back to Acts. Back in the book of Acts, you know, Peter heals this guy in, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6 right there. And then look what he does. Uh, Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. When Peter saw it, he answered to the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Oh, or, or excuse me, or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? And so he, 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 he's giving glory to God, right? God's getting the glory for this. And in the following verses and in the rest of the chapter, Peter begins to preach Jesus to them. And that whole deal with, with that lame guy uh, who just, or excuse me, it was just to get their attention to show that they were from God. Peter saw it as an opportunity. He healed the man, and that gave him an open door to preach the gospel, to start uh, preaching Jesus to them. And so we see this incredible move of God with thousands of souls uh, coming to the Lord and Peter healing a layman and preaching Jesus to the Jews and all this stuff is going on. And then we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So as Peter, uh, as, as John is preaching uh, to the Jews, uh, the Pharisees, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, these guys, the religious elite, they are coming to, 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 to these men being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. So do you see how God moves in a mighty way? And there's Satan to counter with his move. But then God moves again in verse 33. Uh, we we uh, read this, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Okay, And then in uh, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, again, believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, uh, both men and women, 
uh, so much so that they brought forth the sick into the streets, uh, laid them in, on beds, couches, um, and, and then at the, the least, the shadow of Peter. So listen, the power of God, the Spirit of God was moving so much so that old Peter didn't even have to touch these people to heal them. When his shadow would pass by and fall on them, they were healed. And so verse 16 says, There came also a multitude out of the cities, uh, round about, bringing the sick, uh, vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. And by the way, uh, just back to what I was saying earlier, this is something that you never see with people who claim to, to have he- the gift of healing today, right? Uh, they never heal everyone who comes to them without fail. It, it just doesn't happen for some reason. Uh, but uh, anyways, God is moving powerfully. Uh, there's a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Well, watch, very next verse, y'all. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So, so Satan's right there. Now, now, God can and does use these instances. He does obviously work through when Paul and Peter and these guys were thrown in prison. So we're not just saying if, if something bad happens, oh, that must be the devil. But you can't deny that something amazing happens for the Lord, bam, something counters. Something with the Lord, bam, something happens. And so we see how God did use this, how God did move in Acts 5, uh, the very next verses, 19 through 20, uh, the angel of the Lord uh, by night opened the prison doors. Uh, that, that is, um, the angel of the Lord is, is always, biblically speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, opened the prison doors and he brought them forth and said, go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And so just as soon as Satan countered by trying to get them in prison, trying to shut them up, God's spirit moves again. But there's Satan countering again in verse 28. Satan's counter. Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then verse uh, Satan's counter continues in verses 40 and 41. Uh, to him uh, they agreed, and when they had called the apostles, uh, so the religious leaders, the high priests, they're calling the apostles together, they beat them. They said, okay, we warned you, we told you, we, rep- we uh, reprimanded you, we threw you in prison, now we're going to beat you. And so they beat them, and they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. In verse 41, by the way, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And I just want to pause right there and just think, man, if we could get to that place in the Laodicean church age right now, where we would just rejoice because we were kind of worthy to suffer embarrassment for his name, because we were worthy to to be uh, called a bad name by someone, because we were worthy to be disowned by a friend or a relative for his name, much less or much more so uh, suffering physical abuse for his name. But they rejoice and praise the Lord that I am kind of worthy to be ridiculed 
to suffer persecution for the name that is above every name. But, but I want you to look at one of those who preached Jesus. His name is Stephen. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, right? right? We talked a lot about him on Sunday mornings. Uh, man, it says he was full of faith and power. And he did great wonders and miracles among the people. And so God moves through Stephen, and he enables Stephen to preach another message to Israel to give them another chance to repent and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their promised, prophesied Messiah. And all through Acts 7, he's preaching his heart out, man. And I want you to look at the counter of the devil. At the end of Acts 7, verse 54, when they heard these things, man, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They ran upon him with one accord. I mean, this is insane. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And uh, later he becomes Paul. Praise the Lord. Uh, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, this is his cry, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Wow. And, and <laughs> there is so much more. <laughs> this is just uh, the, the, the tiny speck of the tip of the iceberg, right? But this is what history is all about. God moving one way to fulfill his plan and Satan coming in against it in another direction to oppose that plan. I promise you're going to get tired of hearing me say that in the coming weeks. We cannot forget that. And what you'll see is that sometimes uh, it's so obvious. It's like really obvious to see, like, like we saw in Acts. I think that's pretty obvious for us to see. But listen, sometimes it's not. It's not going to be obvious. And that's why we're building this foundation, because as we start going through church history, there are going to be some things that aren't so obvious unless we have this foundation. Because what you'll see uh, in church history is that when the devil realized he couldn't destroy God's plan and he couldn't destroy God's people by coming against it and against them, he decided to join God's plan, so to speak. He decided to join God's people, if you will. And that's when it gets really foggy and discernment is really needed, friends, because the devil is right in the thick of it. He's so subtle. He is so crafty. That's why we're spending so much time looking at this blueprint and understanding it to make sure that we know what we're looking for because he is extremely crafty, y'all. And before we even get officially to our, our church history and attempt to identify what is attributed to God and what is attributed to Satan, we're getting that down now as God reveals it in his word so that we can see it for ourselves and we're able to recognize it as we walk through the corridors of church history, we're learning the patterns of God, and we're learning the patterns of the devil. Because Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15, once again, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and friends, God requireth that which is past. And so we've got to have this pattern down pat. Because that what hap which happened in the book of Acts is happening again. Those moves of God, those counter moves of Satan, the same MO, the same strategy, it's happening today. And it's happening uh, with Christians in the 21st century walking around unawares, 
completely, unfortunately, completely oblivious. And, and so I want us to keep in mind what we've learned about the initial uh, encounter of Satan in the garden. And, and you can uh, refer back if, if you keep your notes every week. You can look back in those uh, from last week. I won't go into great detail, uh, but just as a quick reminder, uh, because of that initial counter uh, of the enemy, of the serpent, that attack, um, we, we see this, um, this subtlety and this craftiness starting from the very beginning. Uh, we spent a lot of time last week in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, and the reason we did that is because obviously the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, right? It's where it all started. And in Genesis, God reveals his plan for mankind. He reveals his plan for the earth. And this is where you see uh, Satan starting to counter that plan. And we saw that in the garden. Uh, before Adam was ever there, someone else was there in, in Eden. Uh, Lucifer reigned over Eden. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 teach us that. And he did that, y'all, until iniquity was found in him. And we find in those passages just what that iniquity was. It was his prideful desire in Eden to exalt his throne above the stars of God. And, and he wanted to not take God's throne. He didn't want to be God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be on equal playing field, on an equal plane with God. And we saw that after that, he was no longer referred to as Lucifer as the light bearer, but he became known as Satan, right? The adversary. But we've got to make sure we understand that today, though, he does still transform himself into an angel of light. He lost his throne on which he reigned over that garden or over that land in the garden, but he, he still transforms himself into an angel of light. And when you walk into Genesis chapter 2, there is a new king. We talked about this last week, right? King Adam. And God has given him dominion over the earth. And God intends uh, to basically pick up what, where Lucifer failed. He intends to execute his plan for the earth. And so in Genesis 3, somebody is coming back. The serpent is coming back to claim his territory, so to speak. And he's wanting that crown that Adam has that was once his. And here, um, he's there, excuse me, Lucifer, the serpent, he's there because he wants to counter God's plan for Adam. And, and God had a plan for Adam, y'all, just like he does for you and just like he does for me. And I emphasize that uh, because if Satan came against Adam and came against God's plan for Adam as a son of God, by the way, don't you dare think for half a second that he won't do the same to you and to me, that he won't come against us as sons of God who have a mission to reproduce other sons of God that will praise and worship God. And so that plan uh, wasn't just for Adam. It was for the whole earth. In, in order uh, to come against that plan, uh, Satan knew he couldn't just go and, and start trashing God, right? He couldn't just go and start uh, dis, dis, um, throwing God's words out completely. Uh, there was a very subtle way that he got them to do that. He got them to simply uh, deny the word of God, not not to not to just hey hey God's bad uh, or hey let's just let's go run out and do all these things, because God already told them 
in Genesis 2.16, he commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And so God was very clear. right? God gave his word to Adam, and, and Satan knows that if Adam obeys God's word, that God will accomplish his plan through Adam and through the earth. So Satan is dead set on doing whatever he can to counter, counterfeit and con confound that plan. So he begins to manipulate a plan of his own to deny God's word. It's not just to throw it out altogether. So he knows it won't be easy because, man, Adam and Eve, they love God. Right? They fellowship with the Lord. And Satan has heard that in the cool of the evening, when they commune with God, he knows that they love God. And so he can't just tell them to forget about God and follow evil and, and do unrighteousness and let's all just disobey God and have a big party about it. He's not going to get them that way. He needs to deliver in a different package, right? So, so what does he do? He questions the word of God. We talked about this last week, Genesis 3.1. He says, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden? And so he says, are you sure you've got the word of God? And then what he does is he changes the word of God. Genesis 3, 4, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So he completely changed the word of God, though he's still calling it the word of God, mind you. And finally, he reinterprets the word of God. And we unpacked all this last week, uh, Genesis 3, 5, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And what he's saying is, Eve, this won't separate you from God. This will make you closer to him. He's reinterpreting what God said and what God meant. And you know how he's doing this? It's all under the guise of religion. He pulls off the greatest scheme ever. Because it has God's credentials on it. And you know what? It sounds spiritual. In our day, it sounds Christian. And Eve is thinking, oh, this is what God said. And through that, through that strategy, through that tactic, they deny the true and authoritative word of God. We see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. I don't have it up there, but it says that she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband, and he did eat. And listen, if you can hear all that, not me, but like if you can hear the truth of the word of God and you're a born-again Christian and you just kind of yawn and kick back and say, oh, that's interesting, what else you got? Then you're in trouble. Because if you don't see that plan of God and how Satan came to counter it, then you will fall into that same trap without fail. Because the strategy, and this is how we put it in our notes, the strategy that Satan used to counter God's plan for man and for the earth in the garden becomes a pattern, y'all, that Satan uses to counter God's plan for the entire 6,000 years of history of man's existence on the earth. It becomes a pattern. And the strategy that Satan used to counter God's plan for the entire 6,000 years of man's existence has been to question, change, 
and reinterpret the word of God. To question, to change, and to reinterpret it. And he is most successful pulling that off under the guise of religion. And so I don't want you to, to just take my word for that. I want to show it to you in the Bible. Uh, so, so don't get bored. Get discerning, okay? Watch. Um, ask God to open your eyes right now, okay? Look, look at a couple Old Testament examples with me. Deuteronomy chapter 13 uh, says, verse 1, If there arise among you a prophet, okay? So a prophet is one who will stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, okay? And you'll see that all through the Old Testament, that prophet would proceed to proclaim God's word. Not man's word, God's word. Okay? So he says, if there, God says to Israel, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, watch this, hello, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto his word, uh, unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so God is, te- uh, God is telling Israel, listen, you need to be real discerning. It doesn't matter how right the guy sounds. It doesn't matter how much of the power of God there appears to be on his life. Remember, friends, the strategy of the devil is not to be a voice against God. We, we unpacked that, I think, at the end of our session last week. The strategy of the devil is not to be a voice against God. It's to be a voice for God. And that package comes in the form of God doth know, etc., etc. This is what God really means. Here's what it really says. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 30. God says, therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord. Watch this. That steal my words, every one from his neighbor. He says it again. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord. So the prophets, those that stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. I'm against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. And do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Watch, he says, I did not send them. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. And so what God is saying is there are people who are claiming to be speaking my words, but they aren't my words. It's a lie. And God says, I am against it. He hates it. And he hates it because it causes his people to get sucked into it, and it causes them to err. And then we roll into the New Testament. And I want you to bear in mind uh, that the things that we're about to see, (laughs) they were written before the New Testament was even fully penned. Okay, the Old Testament was written, right? All that stuff in the New Testament uh, that says uh, the Scripture saith, that's referring to the Old Testament. It's been written, or as it is written, that's the Old Testament. But the stuff in the New Testament that we're about to see is happening before uh, even even the closed canon of Scripture. And that should tell us something. It should show us that Satan is already attacking the Word of God before it is in its final form. 
he's already attacking it. So let's take a look at, at, at some of these uh, churches here. The church at uh, Corinth. Look what he says here. And so I put the verses there and, and underlined the, 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 the word that I think goes in your blanks there. He says that there are many which corrupt the word of God. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, he, he says that uh, there are those that handle the word of God deceitfully. Listen, it's the word of God that they're handling. It's the Bible. It, it's not um, some occultic or, or demonic or Luciferian uh, text or, or ideology or some other religion way out there. It's the Bible. It's the word of God that is being corrupted already in the first century. Already. It is the word of God that is in 2 Corinthians 4 2 already being handled deceitfully before it's even fully pinned in its closed canon form. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 uh, speak of false prophets and deceitful workers. Watch this. Transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They say they're apostles. They seem to have those signs and wonders, though they are really uh, signs and lying wonders. But they claim to be apostles, but they are false apostles. They are deceitful workers. That's interesting that God labels false apostles. If there were false apostles in the first century, I guarantee you there are false apostles today. But the church of Galatia, look what he says here in Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, right? There's really, there's one uh, biblical gospel, right, right there, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, right? But there are those that pervert the gospel of Christ and are calling it another gospel. And that is happening, again, if that was happening in the first century, uh, you know this, it is happening all over the place. Where a, a, another gospel, a perversion of the gospel of Christ, it's labeled the gospel of Christ, but it's not biblical. It's another gospel. The church at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, I, I love that we just talked about this on Sunday. Um, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. For I know this, he says. Not, not I think, not I wonder, not I speculate, not I assume. I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. Now, if you were listening on Sunday, Pastor Frank was telling us, and if you know the context, um, um, this is among a group of leaders, of elders, of pastors. And he says, from among you shall grievous wolves come about. Wow. Not sparing the flock. Again, he reiterates this, also of your own selves. Not, not the people way out there who are worshiping totem poles. Of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Man, th th this, it scares me. 
it, it, it really ought to, to, to cause us to really ask the Lord to, to help us to be discerning in these days because this is the first century. I mean, the men that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh were still around. In, in these days when these, uh, these epistles are being written, uh, Paul is writing these church epistles and, and look at the warnings that are coming about. And these warnings weren't just for later on. He said, I know of you right here under the sound of my voice shall perverse things come. Wow. The church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18, uh, he, he talks about uh, Christ being preached in pretense, uh, wrongly preached, wrongly divided, out of contact, context, in error, falsely. Philippians 3.2, he says, beware of dogs, and I hope you're not scared of German shepherds or poodles or whatever, because he's not telling you to be scared of dogs, but he's calling evil workers dogs. Beware of those evil workers, y'all. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, he, he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. Those that are preaching Christ in pretense, that are preaching another gospel, that are distorting the word of God. He's calling them the enemies of the cross of Christ. Yet they're proclaiming with their mouth Christ. It is such a serious charge. Uh, the church at Coloss, um, uh, or Colossae, or Colossae, you know, whichever variation that, that you uh, like to go with, in chapter 2 and verse 4, he, he, he warns them, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And I want you to, to maybe circle that word man. you got to watch out for men that will beguile us with enticing words. Listen, you have two pastors that are men. And I think you know that it would never be our heart to beguile you with enticing words, but you have to be discerning. I don't care who is speaking. I'll put myself in the very front of that line. You have to be discerning. And not just you have to know a bunch of stuff. You have to go back to the Word of God. And that's why we use so much Scripture in this church. Um, but uh, let's go on. The church at Thessalonica. I think that's the last one there. Uh, I want you to notice, first of all, uh, how they received. This is important. I want you to notice how they received the brethren, how they received instruction from Paul and Silas and Timothy. In chapter 2 and verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men. Excuse me. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Okay, so so grab that. That's Paul's first epistle, first letter to the Thessalonians. And so Satan gets wind of that, and he thinks, hmm. So that's how they're receiving the words that come from Paul and, and Silas and Timothy. What, whatever these guys are saying, these people are receiving it as the Word of God? Okay, interesting. So he kind of gets out his iPad and makes a little note of that or his Blackberry or whatever he's using. And, and, and look what Paul has to write back to them in his next letter. 
in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Right? Speaking of the rapture of the church, the coming of the Lord. Verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Watch this. Neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us. As that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man, there it is again, deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a fallen away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So do you see what happened? Satan empowered some, some guys, some men, to, to write a letter to the believers in Thessalonica, masquerading as Paul and Silas and Timothy. Why would he do that? So that they would believe that that letter was also the word of God and not received as the word of men. So Paul has to go back and warn, warn them about letters that might seem to be from, from him, but they're not. What did I say earlier? Satan will not come against God. He will, uh, um, uh, he, he will claim to be for God. That is crafty, y'all. That is slicker than snot on a doorknob. But see, all throughout the Bible, Satan is working. He's working to cause there to be questions about the Word of God. And what's interesting is you go to the church history books, and we talked a little bit about that last week, uh, and you think all of a sudden it seems like Satan just stopped doing that because none of church history records uh, these things that we're seeing biblically. It's as if Satan just decided to, to take a sick day, like he just checked out. But do not be fooled, that has always been his strategy. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, okay, I see, Robert, how Satan's been attacking the Word of God through the Old Testament. I see how he's been attacking it through the New Testament. Uh, but, but really, why do I need to know about that now? It's because of what's going on today. Like, that's what we've been talking about. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.15, right? That which hath been shall be. And so as I said at the beginning of our time together tonight, we're going to skip, just for a week or two, we're going to skip 2,000 years of church history for now um, and talk about the issue of today. And I'm hoping that this will put something inside of us that says, okay, if, if, you don't, if you're not already in this place, man, I've got to learn this. I've got to know this stuff. I've got to learn church history. Because I've got to be able to know how to answer this stuff. Those questions you asked me, Robert, at the beginning about why I believe what I believe and why every place down Southside Boulevard and Beach Boulevard and Atlantic Boulevard and 295 and why all these places that call themselves churches, why they all believe different things about Jesus and the Bible and the end times and salvation and baptism. Like I want to be able to answer that. So if that's you, man, then, then hang in there because we're answering those. And if you're not there, I hope that you get there because if you don't have a desire for that, then you will fall, if not already fallen, for the traps of the enemy. So I want to talk about the example of today. This issue has crept in so subtly that Christians in the 21st century do not see it as an attack from the enemy. Okay, what I'm about to talk about and next week what we're going to cover, um, wherever you stand on this issue, I know we've had people who have joined us um, who don't even live in the state, and I'm so grateful for that. And we have a lot of our home family, our church family here, and so we may have different people who have different thoughts or ideas or understandings of these things. I'm just going to ask you, wherever you are on, on these things, 
just hang in there and, and just ask the Spirit of God to teach you His Word and to open your eyes and to give you ears to hear. Not me, but, but, but what He is saying through His Word and to really discern by His Spirit and to see this subtle attack that has happened. Because this issue has crept in so craftily and so subtly that most Christians don't even see it as an attack. Did you hear that? Most Christians don't even see what I'm about to show you as an attack. They do not see it as an attack on God, and they do not see it as an attack on His Word. They actually call it good. And I want you to remember those little blanks that we filled in last week about how um, what, what we see as the, and maybe this week too, I think we filled them in, as you, uh, people who see the movement of God and call it evil. That was last week, I think. And people who see something evil and call it good. We don't have discerning eyes anymore. We don't have spiritually discerning eyes. We don't have biblical eyes. And so what they see is, what I'm about to show you, they say is good. And listen, for the huge, overwhelmingly majority of Christians, this thing we're about to talk about isn't even a blip on their radar. Like, it's not even a concern. Honestly, uh, for years, it wasn't on mine. And if you know where I'm going with this, or when I get there, if you're like, okay, yeah, I'm with you on this, Robert, then maybe it wasn't a blip on your radar at one point either. It has happened that subtly. But you'll be able to recognize it because you're being trained on what to look for and how uh, God works and how Satan works. And so I want us to look at the real issue in Christianity today. And this question that you see in front of you right now, if you can see my PowerPoint, it is going to drive us this evening and next week. The question, the issue that is facing Christianity today is do we really have the Word of God? And you're like, of course we do. Like, <laughs> it's everywhere. But I want you just to slow down for a second. That attack isn't coming from the lost people who would doubt and disbelieve the authority of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible. That question isn't coming from a lost world. It isn't coming from the Satanists and the pagans and the atheists and the agnostics. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about – no, I'm not talking about uh, liberal scholars who, who have never believed in the inspiration of the Bible from the beginning. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the attack that comes from within. Remember what Acts 20 said and what Paul warned about? The attack that comes from within. Those who call themselves Bible believers. People like you and people like me. People who say that they believe every single thing that you believe. Listen, 95% of the biggest and most influential voices in Christianity today the preachers that we listen to and that honestly maybe we're blessed by, uh, the books that we pick up from the Christian bookstore and read, uh, the, the Bible studies we do, the prestigious Christian universities and Bible colleges all over this country that, that are supposedly speaking the truth, right? Even people, I'm, listen, people who are genuinely saved and love God, 95% of them, if you could sit down with them, and bring it to the bottom line, they would have to tell you the book that we hold tonight and call the Bible is not the absolute, perfect, inerrant, 
inspired, preserved word of God. And if you hear that and you're thinking, okay, Robert, the last couple of weeks, um, you bored me to tears. I've never really liked you. I thought you were crazy. Now I really think you're crazy. You're telling me that people who truly are saved and love God and graduated from Liberty University or Luther Rice Seminary, that was me, or, or, or anywhere else, and go to all these churches and love and all that stuff, you're telling me that they would, the bottom line of what they would tell me is that they do not believe the Bible is the absolute perfect, inerrant, inspired, preserved word of God. So are you calling them liars? No, I'm not calling them liars. But if, if you can uh, get down to the bottom line, and this is why it's so confusing, because preachers will preach, this is the word of God, y'all. It's inspired. It's the authority. It's the standard. But if we can get that preacher alone after service and sit down with him, he'll tell us that the word of God isn't here. And I want to show this to you, not from my mouth, but from theirs. Um, one of the greatest, uh, the most important things you could do when you're looking for a church home is to go on their website and look at the things that they believe. Okay, And so when you do that, you come across all these different things that they believe about God about the Trinity, about um, the end times, about salvation, about marriage, about baptism, and, and all those different things. And you also find out what they believe about the Bible. And you see, you see a lot of different kind of, of repackaged um, blurbs, uh, <clears throat> but a, a lot of them really say the same thing. And, and I wanted to just share with you one. Actually, I'm going to share with you four, but here's one. <laughs> uh, we believe the scriptures— Okay, the 66 books, this was taken off, off an anonymous uh, and, and random church website. We believe the scriptures, 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, are the inspired word of God and are therefore without error in their original writings. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and free from error. The scripture is sufficient for all that God requires for us to believe and do and is therefore to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires and trusted uh, as God's pledge in all that it promises. And to that, uh, many of Christian would throw up their cowboy hats, say, Yahoo and hallelujah, praise the Lord. But I want you to notice the key phrase there is in the original writings or uh, the manuscripts. In the original manuscript is also what is meant by that. And that's not just an anomaly. That's not just one. I want you to grab onto this one, uh, a typical fundamental statement of faith concerning the Bible. We believe that the Holy Bible, as originally written, was verbally inspired. And these guys are throwing Scripture in there to support their statement. And, you know, when we see that, man, well, it just, what's the, what's the subtle attack? It must be from God. It must be right. I see Scripture there. But, but look at that. We believe the 66 books of the Bible to be the true center of Christian unity and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, opinions shall be tried. Yes, yes, yes. But it says that we believe that the Holy Bible, as originally written, was verbally inspired. And here's another one. We accept the Bible, including the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New Testament, as the written word of God. It's, the Bible is the only essential and fallible record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. It leads us to salvation. Yes, it does. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, it does. Uh, being given by God. Yes, it is. The scriptures are both fully and verbally inspired by God. Yes, they are. 
Therefore, as originally given, the Bible is free of error in all it teaches. Wow. And this one, this last one I'll show you, is from a very prestigious um, Christian university in our country. Uh, this university that, that is supposed to be training up men and women to be champions of the book and who ought to be going through those classes, uh, gaining a stronger understanding and conviction of the authority and the standard that is the Word of God. But they too will tell you that, that they affirm the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, though written by man, supernaturally inspired by God, so that all its words are the written true revelation of God. And it is inerrant. It's authoritative. And it's authoritative in all matters. But it's in the originals that it's inerrant and authoritative in all matters. And so when we look at these, these statements of faith, what do they mean? They mean that all those guys that were used to write the Bible, Moses, Joshua, Daniel, David, Isaiah, Peter, Paul, John, those words were not man's words. They were the words of God. And yeah, I don't think we would disagree with that. But what those statements, when taken in their true context and at face value, what those statements of faith don't mean, they say nothing about how the Bible that we hold today is the Word of God. They say nothing about what we hold today being inerrant, preserved, inspired, true, authoritative, without error. And maybe, uh, maybe you think I'm mincing words there or splitting hairs. I'm not. I'm not. Because, listen, I don't care what version of the Bible you're holding. The problem with those, those um, um, statements of faith is that you don't have an original manuscript in your hand. You don't even have a copy that was directly translated from an original manuscript. And so if all of these churches and these pastors and preachers and, and seminaries and all of, all of these Christian uh, powerhouses are, are telling us that, that we believe, that they believe that the Bible is authoritative and preserved and inspired in the originals, but we don't have the originals. The question becomes, where then is the Bible? Because maybe you know this, I don't know, but the word Bible means book, right? And the original manuscripts, you need to get this down if you don't know it already, the original manuscripts have never been, nor will they ever be, in any kind of a book. Uh, there is no one who will agree uh, that all of the original manuscripts were at any point in one location in the form of a book. Uh, that, that's just not the case. Right? And, and so do you see that problem? To say that you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God in the original manuscripts, you're saying that you believe that in a Bible that never existed. It, you're, a book of original manuscripts that's inspired then and then only. It's a Bible that no one has ever read or even seen. Because those manuscripts did not exist in a book form. And so what good is it if God went to all those great lengths to inspire uh, the writings of those manuscripts, but if no one's ever going to get to them? 
And so I want to just show you a couple uh, lessons here from Paul's letter to Timothy. And I'm aware of our time. Uh, so I'm asking you just to hang in there with me for another few minutes here. Um, if you need to, need to go, I understand. But uh, please do hang with us because this is so important. Um, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, we know this. Uh, most of us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And this is the passage that we'll use as pastors and churches and Bible believers. We'll beat that drum. We'll sound out 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that we believe God has given us his word and inspired his word. And we'll shout and holler, amen. And then we'll add in the original writing, in the original manuscripts. I want to show you, if you go back... Um, I don't have it here, but if you look back in chapter uh, 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, most of us don't ever go back and read that. Paul says to Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. That's an important phrase. From a child, Timothy, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the same scriptures that he's talking about in verse 16 have to be the same scriptures he's talking about in verse 16. So if you make the scriptures in verse 16 only the original manuscripts, that would mean that back when Moses and David and Isaiah and Obadiah and Nahum and all those other guys wrote the original manuscripts, they had to hightail it over to Timothy's house and deliver those things to him several thousand years in advance. If these scriptures that are given by inspiration of God are only the original manuscripts, because it's these same scriptures that Timothy knew from a child, Listen, Timothy never saw an original manuscript in his life. Yet Paul calls what Timothy had Scripture. In fact, he calls it Holy Scripture. And the issue here is, is if the Bible is only inspired in the originals, then, and no one has any, then we've got a problem. Uh, the other questions that arise because of what God said about his word. Psalm 12, 6-7. Listen, the words of the Lord are pure words. And just stop for a second. You were told that what you hold in your hand is a translation. And that's true. You have an English translation of the Bible. And what any of the original manuscript people will tell you is that you have a message from God. You have his thoughts. You have his ideas, his precepts. Th those things that are necessary for salvation, for growth. But you only have a translation. And when you translate from the original languages of Greek and Hebrew into another language, you lose some stuff. Right? You can't have a word-for-word -word translation. So they'll tell you that you don't have the inspired words of God. You just have a translation, which that's true. You do have a translation. That's true. Uh, things do get lost from language to language because there are some words that do not translate directly. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, but listen, you have a translation. So they'll say, you've got the word of God, yes, but you don't have the actual words of God. That's what we're told in, in the church collectively today, right? But keep reading Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The lords of the word are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace, or as purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, 
and thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The them is his words. And I want to stay here for a moment and talk about what what uh, different different Bibles do with Psalm 12, 6, and 7 when talking about the them. I don't have time, so I'm going to bypass it. Uh, Maybe next week we'll get there. But, But he promises to preserve his words and to keep them from this generation forever. Forever. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth, Jesus says, shall pass away, but my words, plural, shall not pass away. And so the question is, do we have his words or have they passed away? Based on the above verses, it's in your notes this way, the words of God have to be somewhere. He promised it. Time and time again, he promised it. So can we at least agree that his words have to be somewhere based on the authority of what the Lord said? Now, they may or may not be in the Bible you're holding tonight. I'm not saying that. We haven't gotten there yet. But they are somewhere. And today, they're somewhere. So the question obviously becomes, where are they? And and, and we're we're not going to go there tonight. Don't worry. Uh, We're going to close this out. But but we're going to take this question and we're going to run with it next week because most professors, most teachers, pastors, uh, churches, universities will come along and say, well, maybe a better way to say it is he preserved his word in the original languages. Well, the problem, as we said with that, is that there are over seven. Okay, so the original languages still exist, right? The original manuscripts, they don't. But, well, maybe a better way is that it's in the original language that he's preserved that word. Okay, so let's run with that for a second. The problem with that is that there are over 7 billion people on the planet today. Maybe it's closer to 8 now. I could be out of, out of touch with that. <laughs> it's probably closer to 8. How many of those people do you think have a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew? I, I, I would submit extremely minuscule at best. So are we to believe that only that extremely small fraction of people have the inspired and preserved words of God? Are we to think that that is how God would choose to keep and to preserve his word? I I shared with you earlier 1 Thessalonians 2.13. I'm going to bring it to a close, uh, come full circle with it here. Note, remember how how the, uh, the Thessalonians received the, the words uh, that came through Paul and through Silas and through Timothy, they received it as the word of God, not as the word of men. And and First Thessalonians 2.13 gets to the heart of the issue. And this is the issue, friends. Is the Bible we have the word of men, or is it the word and the words of God? Now, I'm convinced with everything in me, and I would die on this hill a thousand times that that they are the words of God. But that won't do you a bit of good unless you know why you believe that. You've got to know that. And until you are convinced of that and and know why you believe it, it it won't do anyone a bit of good. And so based on 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the way, this is crazy, the way the word of God effectually works in me, look at the last part of that verse. 
the way the word of God effectually works in me is when I accept it as the word of God and not as the word of men. So this is no small issue, no small issue. So why are we going through this? It's not to slam people at all, but remember Satan's attack. Do we have the words of God today? Yea, has God said, or, or, or is it just the words of men? Is it something that professes to be the word of God, but there are some scribal comments in there, and, and we're not sure if this part in Acts really belongs, and the last part of Mark uh, 16 really belongs, and, and 1 John 5, 7 really belongs. And are, are we really truly convinced that we have the word of God, or is it parts of the, the message of God and, and kind of you know maybe some scribal errors or some translation issues? So we're going to be talking more about this issue next week, uh, next Thursday, and we'll begin to get into how you can know that what you have is the Word of God so that you don't fall prey to Satan's attack on God, on Satan's attack on his plan, God's plan, and Satan's attack on your life. Father God, thank you uh, for your Word, and I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to, to study this out tonight, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord, who I believe uh, love you and love your Word. Thank you for those who are visiting online with us, God. What, what an incredible opportunity, uh, just a privilege for me to, to see uh, new names and new faces, Lord, and I'm just excited by that. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, as we talk about this issue, Lord, first of all, you know that, that I'm not mad at, at, at anyone. I, I'm just passionate about this issue because you are passionate about this issue. And though I don't uh, take issue um, with, with people, I do take issue with every false way. So Lord, I pray that, that we can, can agree on that, and that as we move forward in this study and we continue to lay this foundation of, of church history, Lord, that, that we would not listen to man's words, that we would not listen to, to um, something that, that is called religion or, or, or has your name on it without going back to your word and checking it as the authority and the standard. So, Lord, would you lead us this week and into our study next week by your grace and by your mercy. Give us understanding of these things. Give us compassion. Give us humility, Lord, to submit to you and to your word Whatever we find out, let God be true and every man a liar. In Jesus' name, we praise you and we pray. Amen.